everyone. Welcome back to the Happiest Hour podcast. This is your host, Kaylin, and today I have a very special guest with us. Before I introduce her, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all the love and support that I keep getting every single week. You guys are really enjoying these episodes, and especially when I get to bring really strong women onto the podcast to share their story. So I'm really glad you're enjoying it. Make sure to subscribe um, and make sure to leave a review as well, because it really does support my podcast. But to get started with today, I have a very special guest and she has an amazing story. Um, We met through a mutual friend of ours and her name is Peekaboo Street. Peekaboo, would you like to introduce yourself and say hello? Hello, my name is Peekaboo Street. I am an Olympic skier, a mom of three boys and a founder of the Peekaboo Street Academy in Park City, Utah. And I'm stoked to be here, Kate. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to have you on. Um, A little background story on how me and Peekaboo got connected. So one of my really good friends, Megan, who I'll be living with um, when we move for our job, is good friends with Peekaboo. I guess they grew up together. And so Megan thought that Peekaboo would be such an amazing guest to have on the podcast. Um, Your story is amazing. Everything that you've accomplished in your life is amazing. So I figured we can dive right in and kind of learn about what makes you you. So to start off, I'd love to know about your childhood, how you grew up, kind of how that made you who you are today. Oh, it is such a, um, it's such a funny story. Um, I grew up in a small mine called Triumph in Idaho. It's 12 miles outside of the famous Sun Valley, Idaho, which is where I learned how to ski. Um, I fell in love with skiing when I was I five and a half and um, loved it from the get-go. Uh, no television and all boys to hang out with in the town that I grew up in. So it was kind of a, you know, a little offbeat childhood. And I was kind of destined to be a tomboy no matter what happened. But um, a lot of people thought that I grew up in a hippie atmosphere, which is really f- kind of far from the truth. My father was a Marine and uh, my mom was a bookkeeper and a songwriter and we had a humongous garden we fed half the town you know, my brother and I did chores to help out with everything that happened around the home we had a very structured environment that we grew up in and um, I had to keep it together in order to be able to get to go skiing and keep skiing so it kind of became this never-ending carrot hanging out in front of me to to keep pushing forward in my life. Um, so how were you introduced to skiing? Was it something that was common in your family or did you just kind of pick it up on your own? No, it was, it was something that my brother and my dad went and did and I didn't get to go. I wasn't brought on the trip and I remember spending stewing at home trying to figure out what I could do to get to go skiing and when they got home, I remember I was I was mad and I stormed up to my dad and I said, you know, why didn't I get to go? And he looked at me and he said, it's expensive. You don't know how and I don't have any equipment for you and, and we'll work it out. You'll get a chance. And I was just determined to get a chance now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember putting on my brother's ski equipment and hiking up in the backyard and basically teaching myself how to ski in the backyard in about. 35 40 minutes and my dad came out looking for me and I was positioned at the top of the hill already and he's like what are you doing up there and he got scared for me because of course I'm all geared up in ski stuff and I just 
kind of swooshed down, made two or three turns and stopped and looked at him and his mouth was dropped wide open like Sebastian the Crab in that mermaid movie. It's like, yep. bong, right there goes his mouth. And he said right, right then and there, he knew, oh my goodness, she just taught herself how to ski in the backyard and, uh, you know, this is on. <laughs> so uh, I was in a little bit of trouble because I was supposed to be in the house. So there was kind of an edge on the whole thing because he was like, you know, get in the house. But at the same time, like, wow, she just taught herself how to ski. This could be exciting. So it always had a little twist on it, you know, the whole the whole thing. But that was the beginning of time we went skiing, I believe was the next season. And I had my own stuff and I was all geared up and ready to go. And um, I remember crying because I was afraid my brother was going to push me off. Oh no! <laughs> and I was so not afraid of the chairlift, but I was so mad at being afraid at my brother, of my brother that when I got off the chairlift, I just like I literally just skied around the the top platform and dropped right off the hill and went straight to the bottom. And I made a couple little turns and you know just kind of checked it out in you know your little bomber kid style, and then chucked him sideways and and stopped and had beat everyone to the bottom, including my brother and one of his buddies. And that was kind of the beginning of it for me. I, I was in love immediately. That was that. And uh, I didn't like riding the chairlift with my brother, but I loved skiing. I so loved that did, feeling. When did you start to realize that this could be something that you could be really good at and you can compete at and obviously end up being one of the best at, but when was that moment for you growing up and skiing that you realized that this could be something more than just, you know, hanging out with your brother and having some fun down the hill? So I think for me, the Sarajevo Olympics happened. And um, I remember watching those, those games at a friend's house. Uh, and that was, I think that was the time when I really, it really, it landed hard. Um, I had kind of stated in a couple of different scenarios, which I'll tell this story just because it was it's funny. And you mm -hmm. think you think you know when you're 10 years old what you want to go do, but I I actually had landed on it. Um, I <clears throat> I finished a race. I had uh, I had I had won. I had beat everybody in my age group, the age group above me, both boys and girls. And um, we were walking to the car and I, I took my poles and I tapped my dad on the side of his leg and he stopped and turned around and looked at me and I said, hey, I really like this ski thing. I want to go all the way. I want to win a gold medal. And he, he kind of gave me this little sideways smile and smirk and turned and walking. And it, it it pissed me off. I had a lot of tenacity, right? So I smacked him harder with my poles and I kind of puffed my chest up. And when he turned around, I said it with a little more conviction, like, listen, I'm really into this ski thing. And I, I want to go to the Olympics. I understand of the top. It's, it's where you take it. And that's where I want to go. And, um, you know, I just wanted to let you know. <laughs> and he stepped forward towards me and leaned forward close to my face and said to me, okay, well, if this is what you want to do, then you're on. All the family apples are going in your basket. It's going to get pretty heavy. Don't drop it. 
but we're here for you. Let's do this. And turned around and walked away. And I remember like having such mixed feelings on the way to the car, like, yes, you know, he's in, he's with me. I, I'm going to get to do this. And then I was like, but the whole family's apples are all going in my basket. Like, that's a lot. That was everybody. And, you know, we did everything as a family. So it was only fair for me to think about that perspective of like, oh, yeah, this is probably going to tap more than my share out of the family kitty often in order to happen. I need to, I need to keep that in mind. Right. And as a kid, I'm sitting there going, what does that mean? I'm literally picturing this basket of apples, like dropping and <laughs> falling all over everywhere. Right. But as an adult, you look back going, Oh, I understand what that meant now. But then it just seemed like a, a big basket of apples. So um, I remember being really excited and really nervous um, and really convicted. At, at all at the same time and it was just like boom from then on it's been you know the 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 frost the first wintry frost that come on the window of the school bus and you take your finger and you write the olympic rings so you make the, the olympic rings the emblem in in the frost on the window or you make it in steam on your hair when you get out of the shower or you draw it on a piece of paper or, you know, you just think it started becoming something I thought about. I started practicing my autograph <laughs> instead of doing, instead of doing my schoolwork. Um, you know, I, I don't recommend that to anybody, but as convicted as I am, I'm, I'm not going to say not to. I can't do that. I can't live in a glass house and throw stones, right? So right, absolutely. practice your autograph and, you know, make sure you've got an awesome one, even if you're just a, a awesome bookkeeper and you're signing on the bottom of the checks like my mom was and that was my inspiration for wanting to have a cool one in the beginning and then it morphed into becoming oh this is an autograph this is you know something that that people are gonna ask of me um but yeah it all it all started to to kind of stay present all the time and then i ended up taking the a little piece of paper, taking the Olympic rings and, and drawing them in color on on that piece of paper. And I took it with me everywhere I went and stuck it on my bathroom mirror. To every ski race I went to, everywhere I traveled, everywhere I went, I took it with me and I put it up on my mirror. And I just like, you know, prayed for that to be my destiny, prayed for that to be how it all turned out. So what did your training end up shifting to when you realized that you wanted to make the Olympics your dream? What was your kind of day in the life of training to, you know, be a professional and to compete at the highest level and then one day make the Olympics? How did that change um, once you made that decision for you? And I guess your dad helped you make that decision for your family as well. Yeah. So I, for me, as a, as a person, as a human, um, as an athlete, I started to look at myself differently. I started working with athletic trainers and nutritionists. And I started looking at my body as kind of this, um, for lack of a better term, a machine that needed to have, you know, the best fuel and, and, you know, but it also needed this thing called rest, which you could turn a car off and fire it back up again. And it was ready to go with a new fuel, you know, a new tank of fuel. But for humans, there was the rest factor too, which was always an issue for me. Which I think for a lot of athletes, it is an issue to, slow down and rest and take that recoup time uh, because that includes mental and emotional recoup to not just physical. And with the technology that's there today, that sometimes gets hard, but 
so you start looking at yourself as as kind of this um this machine that you got to start priming to get ready to go so at 13 here i am getting all of my tests done to figure out how strong my the front muscles are on my legs and the back muscles are on my legs to make sure how that they're balanced so that my knees are safe and you know i just remember it it's starting really early on of me thinking about myself in that way um and that was kind of the big physical shift and then emotionally um it was back and forth between wanting to feel as special as it makes you feel to have chosen something like that and how everybody treats you to wanting to be normal and feel normal and be treated normal and act normal and hang out with your friends and have life stay normal um that becomes a challenge at some point for everybody too what were some of the obstacles during that time that you faced that you felt like you had to overcome um, as you joined different teams and competed at different places? What were some of those um, bumps in the road or maybe even hurdles that you thought you couldn't get over but ended up overcoming? So I was I was lucky that, um, you know, I had really great coaches all the way along the way. Um, everyone was really, really helpful. So I was lucky to not have the coaches, the coach situation, which I know a lot of athletes run up against and they're stuck with with a coach for the season and if it doesn't work it can really be a disastrous situation so i was really lucky to avoid um that obstacle which sometimes makes it hard to connect to to other athletes who have run up against that just to try and kind of find the you know find the resources to to pull personally to help but as far as um you know your obstacles uh, I I hit some big ones. The first one was being being a girl in a in a girl's world, having come from growing up a tomboy. So in a, in the boys' world, it's like you've got a problem, you you work it out, and now you have no more problem anymore. And in a girl's mm-hmm. world, a lot of times there's these grudge holding and this this perpetuation and epic scenarios of of dysfunction um, that were hard for me to deal with when I first got onto the team and was traveling with just girls. It was a lot of petty nonsense and I wanted to handle it in kind of a boy way (laughs) and I wasn't able to. So that was a big learning curve for me. I had to, you know, hit the ground running, feet to the fire, figure that one out right now. Like, how do I get along with these people? And I took it to the umph degree. I was like, I don't just want to get along with everybody on my team. I want to make I want to make everybody the best that they can be. I want to make us the winningest team that there ever has been. And that kind of became my mission. So I figured that our relationships would get tidy. I figured that, um, you know, things were going to get organized. Things were going to get worked out. Things were going to move in the right direction because I had set such a goal for us as a team to, to be the best team there had been um, under the U.S. umbrella and. It was going to take baby steps, but that was the goal. And um, I made that goal for us and then kind of started working towards it. Uh, I brought a sports psychologist in to try and bring the team together and start working on team dynamics. And, you know, it's got to remember with ski racing, it's an individual sport, right? Because we win and lose separately. But everything else we do is together as a team so it's kind of an oxymoron in a way because 
well, here's a team that I'm supposed to really bond with and work hard and figure out how to, you know, get it chugging and going as fast and hard and as productive as possible and do my part in that and bring my A game daily. But at the same time, you know, how much better do I want to make these people around me? Because any one of them could then beat me. They're just right there. And so with, for some people, that becomes a difficult spot to be. For me, I was like, oh, yeah, this just is like, you know, it'd be like those people who play poker. They're sitting at the poker table, and the more money that there is on the table, the more excited they get. I think for right. me, it was the same thing. Like, the better everyone's performing, the 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 better I'm going to have to perform in order to beat them. And then when I beat them and I, and they're performing that well, and so am I, it's that much more rewarding as an athlete to feel that kind of fulfillment. It's those little details that go into making a win as awesome and, and as memorable as it is. Right. So, um, so it was, it was trying to get everybody on board to be, creating that kind of feeling to where we, we all wanted to be winning. And then of course, the more I won, the more Hillary won, then Krista wanted to, and then Megan would pop and then personal best with, with Clarky. And, you know, it was just like, boom, 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 here, here came the whole team. Um, you know, by the time we got it all figured out and we ran into some hiccups, you know, we, we learned some stuff about one another in some of our sessions that were, that was tough. Um, went through some big learning curves. Can't judge a book by its cover. Um, don't be afraid to look at your teammate and, and say, okay, you know, what strengths do you have that I don't have that I could watch and learn from while they do the same thing of me and in an individual sport to get that close to somebody and know you might be giving them a little personal, um, it's a challenge. Like Hillary and I watched video together and we didn't ski much alike. And so it turned out to be that our my strong spots were her weak spots and her strong spots were my weak spots. And before long, we were the two to beat period. And um, so that was a big obstacle, like probably the biggest. It really changed the way that I look at people, period, because it all we got a big block going. It started from a misunderstanding. It perpetuated and grew like anything will when you let a relationship, something in a relationship fester and don't take care of it. Um, and then talked about it, you know, got real honest and vulnerable with one another and then became real confidants and, um, you know, had a really strong couple of years after that. So that was one big one. When I was young, I overcame money, which today you just kind of do a GoFundMe or something like that. But in my day and age, I literally went from door to door, knocking on businesses doors and, you know, half the people I knew because they were my parents' friends and stuff. But I was like, I need $5,000 to go to Alaska to compete in the World Juniors. And I don't I don't have it. Here's how much I have from so-and-so and so-and-so. Here's my goal. And every one of them helped me. They were all super cool about it. And all they wanted was me to do my best. So that was kind of the beginning of, you know, paying it forward. Well, right. actually, the, the very, very beginning of paying it forward um, was, let's see, it started, and it started back with the Sun Valley ski team, actually. I think I was 
right after I was 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, 12. And um, I got a silent sponsor to my way to ski for the Southwest ski team. And it stayed oh, wow. that way for, I, I stayed that way for, I want to say three years, three or four years. Um, and this person did this. And um, I'm not totally sure who it is, but I'm pretty sure who it is. Um, but that was the bridge between my parents and, you know, kind of our financial situation and then the U.S. ski team, which I was lucky to, you know, come up through the through the ranks and, and hit the radar of the U.S. They had the resources at a development level to you know, pick athletes up and bring them on a kind of a year round tour of chasing the snow around and, and, you know, starting to, to really specialize and be a year round athlete and on the ski team's budget. Um, and that made it possible at age 15 to join the US ski team and, and um, not have to pay my own way anymore and just focus on school and skiing. Right. And that was, um, you know, so that was a, that was an interesting kind of route to everything too, for me financially. So I always felt like I had a, a responsibility to pay it forward when I got done to make sure to, um, to perpetually facilitate the opportunity for others to chase their dreams, you know, whether it be through, through the foundation or now through the school, uh, you know, just mentoring somebody going for a walk, talking to them, saying, Hey, what are you about? You know, what's what's in your way? What do you want to do? Who have you told your biggest dreams to? You know, just mentoring people to, to get it out and talk about it, profess it, and send it up to God or the universe or whatever you believe in so that it can come back to you, right? So I was just kind of always felt like I take the opportunity to do that whenever it presented itself. So whenever I signed an autograph, I'd always you know, ask the person, what's your name? Where are you from? What are you into? Are you, you know, do you want to be a skier or what are you into too? And, you know, I got everything from heart surgeons to musicians to, you know, to another skier to every, and everything in between, right? You, you never know. It's so exciting to hear little ones tell you they're dreaming of being. Well, I think that's a really inspiring story. And I'm, I'm really happy that you also pay it forward to, um, I think some people, um, especially when they're like really successful, they forget that what an impact they can make for other people that are chasing their dream. And that's definitely something I want to talk to you about a little bit later. But you mentioned, you know, being on the U.S. team, representing your country. What was that like for you? And you've won a couple world championships. You got to compete in the Olympics and chase your dream. So um, also tell us a little bit about what that call was like or when you found out that you were going to be competing in your first Olympics what was that feeling like and um what was that experience like as well uh, I'm getting like tingly sitting here thinking about it it's so fun um <laughs> so <laughs> so the first one that you think about as an athlete and you you can probably relate is the uniform right you you cannot wait to put on the uniform and the and the first hit that that we get with that is the team uniform for the for the season right so it's like a jacket and a vest and your downhill suit and your GS suit and your pads and, you know, all your get up for the year that you've got all your team USA all over like us ski team stuff. Um, and then you get a different uniform for the world championships and a, and a, yet a whole nother different uniform for the Olympics. So 
that was, you know, the uniform thing is always like a super cool moment because it's, it's when you really realize, um, you can like palpate something. Otherwise it's just an idea. It's just something going to happen in the future. It's just, uh, you know, you said, call you, but when you get your uniform, you're like, you can smell it and you can feel it. You can put it on and look at yourself in it. And you're like, yeah, check me out. Right. So I remember getting my first ski team uniform and feeling that way, just being like jittery all over. And it, this is so exciting. Um, and, uh, but it was nothing. It, it, it paled in comparison to getting the Olympic uniform. Um, that one was not it. And that one creeps up on you a little more slowly because it builds throughout the season, right? So the, the, ski, the team has a criteria that you have to meet in order to qualify for the World Championships or the Olympics. So as you race through the season, you either pull that off or you don't. So it can kind of be anticlimactic in the sense of, let's say you start the season and you win the first downhill. And unless somebody else comes out and starts winning too, you know, you're, you're probably making the team. Um, right. You know, even, even if you get like top four in the, in the next, well, you made the team. You win a World Cup, I think. Let's see. When I was on the team, I think if you won a World Cup, you made you made it in that discipline. And if you were top four twice, I can't remember exactly how the numbers went because they shifted year they shifted year to year. But anyway, um, you know, if you did well and you and you won a race or two, you knew you had made the team, right? So when they actually sit everybody in the room in January and say, "Hey, you know, the Olympics are next month, and here's who's on the team." that can be kind of anticlimactic at that moment. Um, so that makes the whole, when you get the uniform, that much more dramatic. And you, you know, you do, you do go stand in the mirror and you do put true USA, like Team USA, USOC official uniform on. Um, you look at yourself in, in the mirror and I know I did. I it hit me like a, a ton of bricks. I thought, wow, um, okay. So it's no longer just triumph. It's no longer Sun Valley. It's no longer the people in, you know, the Intermountain area. It's no longer just, just the nation. Um, I'm now racing for USA internationally at the Olympic Games, the highest mm -hmm. level of sport. That I'm getting used And I'm wearing USA on my back. Like, and everyone's <laughs> going to be looking at me. Um, it, it was unbelievable, the sensation that came over me. And I thought that I was going to cry initially just because that was the only emotion I could relate to it. But I, it, was, it was pure joy just standing there looking at myself in the mirror going, Wow, all this time, you know, and I was alone. That was the hardest part, was mm -hmm. I was alone. And there are so many people who should have been standing there, who I wished were standing there, who I had emotionally near me there because it was that powerful of a moment. And, um, and it was empowering, really, really empowering. I was like, okay, it's, this is what you've been training for, kid. Like, it's go time. Um, and even though it was a little ways away and I had, I had a minute to, you know, to breathe and think about it all. 
it just was kind of that, you know, gentlemen, start your engines thing. They they were rumbling from then on. And it was just a matter of how much gas to put on. And and the whole time you're thinking, the world's watching, the world's watching, the world's watching. Like it never right. when you're at the games, you're thinking that. And I'm sure it's even worse now with phones and and is you know everyone is now like I thought that was happening back when I was going through. Now it's probably even worse because yeah, anyone can have their phone on running at any time. So it's uh it's wild, but um you know that's what you train for. So it's it kind of reminds me of like I asked some fighter pilots one time, are you ever afraid to go to combat? Like are you know do you are you okay that you haven't gotten called to combat? And they looked at me like I was crazy. They're like what? That'd be like you turning to the Olympics and never getting to go. And it was the first time I went like, oh, okay. That's what that, that, you know, that's what that's about. They want to, like they are, they've put time into it. And that's what I think allows them to connect with, with someone like, like an Olympian. Right. So during the time that I had success, was at a time when our country kind of needed, you know, some, some USA pump up power and right. um, and it's that some of the some of my visits with some of the military folks since ha, you know has helped me understand that a little bit more the civilian side but um um you know it's been it's been such a such a special ride um the olympics are uh are like a big city and with the horns honking and the lights going and, you know, you can hear people's voices and it's just like the energy of the Olympic games is, is vibrating like a big city that never sleeps. It never goes quiet. It's, uh, there's always stuff humming and you can feel it no matter what. So I had a tough time sleeping at the Olympic village because I was so excited. I just wanted to be up cruising, visiting, meeting people, getting, you know, to know people from other countries and cultures that that I was only getting to see at the Olympics, you know, I wasn't seeing all the time. Um, it was it was a once in a lifetime experience, and each games for me was unique in that sense as well, based on where we stayed and where the events happened, and how much time I got to spend at the Olympic Village or with the other athletes. Like it all kind of. Um, you know, it changed throughout the three different Olympics. So I have some really fun mixed memories of, you know, isolation and, and winning and, and being a part of everything and, and, you know, the big celebration. As a gold medalist, what was that like to win your first gold medal and to be recognized as, you know, the best in the world? I, I can't even, I don't even know how you would put that feeling into words, but what was that like for you? Do you remember the moment when you realized that you had done it and you not only was your dream going to the Olympics, but you won it all? So, so this is a, this day is such a, such a funny, interesting day and um, not the way that I expected it to turn out at all. Um, I, I had my eye set on a different outcome in in Nagano and Hakuba and um, and so the way it turned out is hilarious. So here so so get this. Here's here's the final day. Um, the morning of the of the downhill or excuse me of the super G, which first of all 
I think I had finished, I think, I think a third place was the top finish I had ever gotten in a Super G before on the, on the world. So I was a bit of an outsider on the, on the Super G side. <clears throat> I was using it as a warm up day for the downhill because I had rolled my ankle playing volleyball with the Swedish team a few days <laughs> earlier. It was just like, it's, it's, it, the story is so colorful if I, if I told everything and all the detail that went on while we're at the games, but that, that one's pretty impactful. So yeah, I rolled my ankle. And so the day that we did free skiing on the retail for the downhill, I chose not to do it because my ankle was hurting and the snow was really, really bad. The preparation of the hill was really bad. And so my coaches and I were like, this isn't going to give me a sense of the hill at all. In fact, it's going to give me a really bad sense of the hill. It's going to give me the wrong sense of the hill because it's not going to feel like this on race day. So I sat out of that. <clears throat> so the Super G was a warm-up day for the downhill, which a lot of people think that I'm crazy for saying that, but that's, that's, that's how it was. That's how we were looking at it because I wasn't a medal contender. So the morning of the Super G, I wake up head to the ski room as usual and outside of the ski room are my downhill training skis now these are the skis you warm up on on a downhill race day not on a super g race day so i lean my head in and i say to my service tech whose name is mike carries but we call him cookie whole nother story i won't squirrel on that one <laughs> okay. um, but cookie he's a six foot six cowboy from canada and um I said, hey, what gives? My Bubba's are outside. And uh, he says, yeah, that Russian set a, an amazing course. He, he, set, he set a kind of like a downhill. So yeah, you're going to warm up on your Bubba's and look what I'm waxing. And I looked at the skis he had on his board and he was waxing and prepping for the race. And they were the downhill skis that I had won my silver medal in Lilyhammer on four years earlier. Do that instantly because they have purple sidewalls, like bright purple sidewalls, so they stand out. And they were four years later with a new top on them, exactly what they were. And I just said, Olies? I'm running on Olies today? And he's like, yep. And we both just had like, it's like I had this moment, like bing, 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 little sparks kind of went off. Like, this is gonna be fun, right? And so <clears throat> I take Bubba's and I, and I go to inspection. And as I'm looking at this course in inspection, not only am I seeing, yes, the Russian had most definitely, because let me back up and explain the Russian. Um, w uh, any other course other than a downhill in alpine skiing is set by, the course is actually set by a coach from a country with a team participating in the event to spice it up and make it interesting for everybody in you know within the sport so a russian had drawn the draw the set for the super g at the nagano games he had a big pack of downhill girlies so he sat as open of a course as he could get away with legally on the hill with enough changes of direction for the vertical drop right so as i'm looking at this course it's got downhill written all over it. It's got me written all over it. And as I start to get about halfway down the course, I can feel everybody looking at me. I can feel all my competitors starting to kind of look at me a little bit different and start to just kind of, you know, it's almost like you get this hot spot on you. People are staring at you. And I figured it out. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. 
you know, this thing is going to rock and roll. This is going to be a downhiller's day. And it all just started to kind of to, to flow after that. And my teammate, John Mendez grabbed me, said, can we have a chairlift ride before we race today? She hopped on the lift with me, looked at me and said, I don't know what happened to you in RA Sweden, because I had fallen in RA a couple weeks before and smacked my head and kind of dinged myself up a little bit. So she said, I don't know what happened to you in RA. You know, you lost a little bit of your confidence. You need to snag that back like now. And I don't know if you noticed, but everybody was looking at you at inspector. Not to put any more weight on your shoulders. And I want you to know that when you win this afternoon, I will bring the entire team down to Nagano to watch you get your medal. And that was a really big one. Like, I remember that being really an impactful conversation with her. Um, she's somebody who I'd gone to, to, you know, to kind of get, get back. Uh, she was a friend, a true, true friend. And she's someone who I was going to race against for an Olympic medal in a couple of hours. And here she was trying to, you know, pump my, my hot air balloon up. And so I gave her whatever I could back. <laughs> um, she said it was lots. I didn't think it was much, but uh, we had a fun exchange and, um, you know, all, all arrows aimed at, you know, getting, getting a medal because it wasn't supposed to be that way in Super G when I went over there. Um, so I have another really funny story. Um, as I was walking in the restaurant before the race, we were all, we had done inspection, done warm up, we were ready to go. And we were walked in the lodge to, you know, go to the last, last potty breaks and snacks and get ready, whatever. We're walking in. Jean-Luc Cretier from France is walking out. He has just won the men's downhill and is now the Olympic gold medalist in downhill earlier in the day, right? And they're out going to run out and do some Super G training. So on his way out of the restaurant, he looks at me and says, you know, hey, champ, it's your turn, and gives me a big high five. On the backside of the high five, instead of connecting with my hand, he like moved it over and connected with my with my ass cheek. <laughs> and it shocked <laughs> me so much that I actually dropped my helmet that I had on the ground, cracked my face mask right at the rivets where it connects to my helmet and realized it when I picked it up and I'm like, you know, trying to say bye to him and I'm realizing I have just cracked my helmet that I'm supposed to race in in like, you know, minutes. I'm supposed to go to the start in like 20 minutes. What am I gonna do with this face mask? And it was, it was again, just another obstacle thrown in my face at the, at the last minute to say, you know, hey, you got this. And I'm right. like, well, it is what it is. There's no time to like change it. And, and to top it all off, my helmet is painted like the Bengal tiger by my old art teacher from high school. And the bottom half of his mouth is on, the, is on that face mask. So I'm like, my paint, my paint, my paint job has to stay intact if nothing else, right? Right, so, right. So I go to the start a little bit early and I walk up to Cookie and he's got this look on his face like, what is it now? And I, and I hand him my helmet and I show him and he just gives me this, I got it, you know, get out of here and brushes me off and gives me this go get ready look. And as I'm walking away and I'm grabbing my headphone to put it on my ear because I wore music all the time I wore really big headphones to keep my ears warm and to and to have stay in my zone. So I'm right. putting my headphone on and I hear that 
that noise that you that you only one thing makes this sound and it's duct tape right when you peel it off the roll and it's just like <laughs> and that's what yeah. i heard as i put my helmet on and i'm thinking sweet here i am the dirt bag from idaho in a race in the olympic games with duct tape on my helmet because i dropped it on the ground what a dork right such a like human moment such a humbling moment of just like and now it's a joke when i look back at the helmet i'm like thank god he didn't put another wrap on it because i chucked my gear on i i ripped down my run um ingeborg helen markin from uh norway had had drawn number one so she smoked the top half of the course like she skied it the way that i looked at it and thought i might be able to ski it but wasn't sure and then when i saw her i was like oh yeah it's on i'm doing it i'm skiing it that way i can i can do it i'm on my downhills you know they'll get going my oldies will rock and and just talked myself into it it was just positive self-talk the whole time into it um my teammate Clarky Cookie yelling for me as I left the start. I could I could hear him vividly. I can remember it clear as as if it was just a minute ago. Um, and then hitting you know four of the first six gates with my shoulders, knowing that I was fine to kind of keep it tight because my olies were gonna want to run straight. And making a humongous mistake midsection on the course, thinking. Oh my goodness, like there, that was, I was so angry at myself. Words cannot describe how angry I was at myself. And, and I took it out on the course. I took it out on like pulling everything into my skiing and driving as hard as I could down the next section of four gates. Um, skiing a really, really straight and kind of late line because I had an early number and I knew that the snow was gonna peel less for me than it did for everyone after me. So I made a calculated choice to just straight line that section and deal with the consequences of the flight off the jump on the bottom and correct myself after that landing. And that's exactly what I did. And um, and I didn't realize how fast I was going until I did hit that jump. And then all I could hear was my coaches voice in my head saying, stay left of center, stay left of center off the bottom jump, make bottom jump. And he had kind of an adamacy in his voice that I didn't usually hear in, in the coach's report, you know, right before we get our, take our run, they call us and tell us, you know, about the course. Um, so I was listening to his voice in my head, stay left of center, stay left of center. And, and I remember reaching, crossing the finish line, thinking in my head, wow, I'm really glad I stayed left of center off the jump because the finish pole is right there. Um, and the first thing you do is you think about controlling yourself. And so I stood up and chucked my skis to get myself slowing down. Then I looked up and it's when I saw how much I had beat Ingeborg Helen Marken from Norway, who was a good Super G skier. Like she was a contender right. for a medal on the day. And I had beat her by, you know, over a second. I think it was like 116 or something like that. And uh, at that point I went, wow, it was a good run. That was a good run. And I like gave it to myself. And I remember putting a one up thinking, what are you putting a one up? This is super G like, 
not sticking, but oh, it's up. So let's just leave it, right? And you can kind of see it in the video that, um, you know, that was all happening in my mind as I put it up there. But I felt good. I had I had put a run together that, um, you know, was surprising. And um, then I had to wait because I ran number two. So I had to wait for some of the some of the, you know, hot shots and the favorites for the day to to come. And so that wait was that wait took a little while for sure. Cause yeah. A, is that harder to go in the beginning than towards the end and just kind of wait to see how all everything else lines up or would you rather just go at the end and, you know, seal it out for the day, knowing what the competition did before you? So it was interesting. Um, for me, I, I didn't, I liked either way. I didn't care. Okay. Um, because I just felt like if I boxed myself into one way, there was, there was a lot of anxiety that built for me around that, that, that I didn't want to deal with. And here's how I knew. Okay. I watched one of my competitors. I'm not going to name her just because I don't want to do that to her, but I watched one of my competitors, um, develop a need to have a late number either in the, in the top 15 or the top 30, depending on how we were flipping it. Cause those, they, it flips depending on the conditions. Um, okay. the, be the best people would either, the best person would either go 15th or the best person would go 30th. So she always wanted to run later. So when the way the bib draw worked was I was ranked number one, I had the most points. So I got to pick any number I wanted between one in 15 or one in 30. I got to pick whatever I wanted. And there was an, always gonna be a sweet spot in the downhill of like four, five, six numbers. That the snow, the sun, the temperature, the crystals, the base of the, of the skis and the prep on the skis is all gonna line up just right. And that's where, you're, that's where you know, your winner's gonna come out of and potentially another podium as well. So everybody's kind of shooting for that bundle of numbers and trying to figure out where that's going to be the next day, race day, right? Right. So I'm supposed to pick within those numbers, but I start seeing the games that people are playing. Seitzinger liked to throw up a big run and a fast time and sit down there and watch people crap at the start trying to, you know, pull it together to beat her run. She liked that. She also liked running in right around her tightest competition. So she embraced both of those. I watched one of my one of my competitors have a need the anxiety it created for her was what it was a bummer for me to watch because the night before draw was a nightmare for her. Because if the coaches said, Hey, numbers eleven, twelve, and thirteen are gonna be the sweet spot tomorrow, that's what we're shooting for. And she's wanting to pick number 28. Now she's got in a pickle with her coaches and, and, and you know, struggling with herself and, and her psyche and, and got herself in a spot where she was, she struggled with it. She had to figure out a way to, to work it out and run where she needed to run in order to, to be with the best numbers. Um, and so with that, I was like, I'm not, I don't care. I'm going to run wherever it doesn't matter. And I'm going to overcome everything and I'm going to, I'm going to pull this off. And you're going to have to beat me to win. I'm going to have to make a mistake for you to win. Those are all the things I told myself mm -hmm. in, order to, in order to get myself. And you don't say that to anybody else. Right. <laughs> you, don't ever, you don't ever say these things to anybody else. You know, you can tell your best friend that you say them to yourself. But 
that's all your your positive self-talk it's that that self-affirmation that only you can give yourself um that you know that gets you being able to bring your a-game all the time no matter what and then once you know how to do that it's a matter of managing what's in and around you uh, affecting that 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 a-game and making sure nothing changes it nothing and then once you get to a certain level, you start spicing it up. You know, I have to be honest. Um, I'll never forget the feeling that I had inside when, when I got down to Nagano, they took us, you know, down underneath the building. My brother was the person who came with me. We were all treated like rock stars. And when we came up out from under, under the building to get our medals, they brought us up onto catwalk felt like a rock star stage right the guy had never really been on a rock star stage before but right <laughs> it, it felt like a rock star stage and lights everywhere and there's and everybody's heads are at your feet it was a very very weird experience but pretty cool um and i'm with you know i'm with two two close buddies from and we step in behind the podium and we're kind of, you know, giggling to one another, like, yeah, we're here, you know, we, we pulled it off. And um, my girlfriend, to just to squirrel slightly, my girlfriend, Micey, who got, she get she got third and Mickey got second because Mickey ran later and popped in on us. Um, the spread between myself, Mickey and Micey, the top three spots in that Super G was I believe five one hundredths of a second. Wow, that is unbelievable. It was one one hundredth of a second between Mickey and I, and then I think three or four between her and Micey. It was the smallest margin collectively on the podium, but the smallest margin between gold and silver ever in the history of the Olympic Games. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Yes. Very interesting. Right? So at what point do you not, for me, I'm a Christian, right? So I look up to the sky and go, thank you. Thank you so much. You, that that could have gone wherever you wanted it to go and you chose me and absolutely yeah so thank you thank you and and i will you know i'll do right by it and i've worked you know i've worked ever since to do just that is do right by it right you have this here's something that i think that a lot of olympians might admit to feeling is even though i know i worked hard yeah. And and I know that I, you know, that I sacrificed stuff and I know I overcame obstacles and, and yeah, I was cool and I was a mentor and I had people and whatever. I, I know, know how the whole thing evolved, but in the end, I was, I was given that gift and that blessing. Uh, I was given the blessing of being able to ski well enough to even, even try, let alone succeed. And, um, you know, I felt like, I always felt like I needed to make sure others got the same chance, you know, and to mm -hmm. never, to never be like, you know, Oh, Hey, that was, you know, that was mine to begin with, whatever, to not ever take it for granted to, to always be so humble and grateful and, and, um, know in the very, very end that, you know, I, I didn't ultimately have that much to do with it. Um, you know, all of that, it all could have landed somewhere else. And without all the people that helps me along the way, it doesn't happen either. 
And that's what you're left with that, you know, at the end of it all is that pride of like, yeah, we did it. It's been a, we did it for me ever since. And when I stepped off of the, the podium, well, first of all, yeah, I can't tangent on that one. When I stepped off the podium um, and I walked, I, you know, walked off after hearing the national anthem and seeing my dad crying in the and walked down the steps and my brother is the first person standing there and he's been, you know, my confidant through thick and thin going to push me off the chairlift and, you know, yep. my, my inspiration for wanting to haul ass in the first place. And there he is standing there and he, he just looked at me and he gave me a huge hug and he said, um, congratulations champ. You are my hero. Oh, that's so sweet. And I remember getting these super weak knees and being like, hero, wait a minute, like hero. And it was such a big word to hear from my big brother who had like, you know, dumped on me and out, out raced me on bikes and motorcycles and on foot and was my protector and, you know, blah, blah. It was just like, wait, hero. And he could tell that he had blown me out. Right. So he leans back in and gives me another hug and says, but you're always going to be my dumb little sister. Oh, that's sweet. That's a cute <laughs> I was like, yes! I like the dumb little sister role. I'm good at that one. <laughs> I can do right, that absolutely. One. I'm comfortable there. I'm familiar there. I know how to do that one. So it was a really tender moment of him just kind of bringing my feet back to the ground going, you know, congrats champ, but life goes on. And, um, and it, mm -hmm. You know, and and we got a downhill in a couple of days. Like, oh yeah, we're still <laughs> we're still competing. Um, but yeah, just um, amazing, amazing, chilling uh, memory. Um, it, it stays clear and 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 sharp and vivid still to this day. The sound of the anthem playing, feeling of being up there with my friends, even if they were Austrians. Uh, you know, knowing that that. All my teammates were in the audience watch it. It just all came together. Oh, and it was a full moon to boot. Oh, perfect. The perfect was, end to an amazing right? day. Yeah. So it was, that was the happiest hour of standing there listening to the anthem. Oh, I, I see flag. that little play on words. Right? So when I first heard it, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, but now I can appreciate the actual happy hour apres thing a lot more mm. now that I'm not a competing athlete. <laughs> So. so what advice do you, I mean, you had told an amazing story. You really live by the whole, it takes a village. And I, I admire you, your humility as you tell that story as well. It seems like it almost just happened yesterday, how vividly you could recall the whole, the whole moment. I can't imagine. But um, what tips do you have for people that are even in my age group or younger than me that want to play at the highest level, want to one day be an Olympian, just like you dreamed of? What are some pieces of advice you can give to them to keep them motivated to follow their dreams? I think a really, really important one is that po is that positive self-affirmation. No one else can give it to you. You have to give it to yourself. And and then and then set your life up in a way that that makes it so you can be accountable as as well. And when you can account when you can match that accountability to that self-affirmation, now you're really you're really planting some big seeds, um, you know, in your in your future to germinate no matter what um, in, in life period. And, and then for sure in whatever you're striving for. I think another one, you know, to, to get, you know, kind of 
ooh, ooh, la, la is I, I really believe that um, whether you believe in, in you know, the, the universe and the Big Bang Theory, whether you're a, a Christian and Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior or, or you've, you know, chosen another route, whatever works for you, um, there is power in that belief. And that belief needs to be a part of your empowerment and your inspiration perpetually. And whatever the kind of the rules and the, um, you know, whatever the, the, the rules and regulations are within that, you play by them. Um, right. And that, that's a foundation that you build your life on. You build your quest on and it, it sticks with you and it goes wherever you go. Right. You've got to build. you got to build a, a, a toolkit that you take with you no matter where you go. Whether it's, you know, food because you're a picky eater. And you need to make sure that you've got the food that you that you need or the spices you need to make things taste the way you want them to. Um, whether it's, you know, the your free ski and skis, so you can go out and, and free ski often so you can remember the love of the sport and not have mid-season. Whatever you need in your personal toolkit to make your on-the-road, on-the-go, on-the-move program as personal to you as you can get it, do it. Pull it together, make a list, pull it together, hold it, hold it safe and sacred. Tell everybody how important it is to mess with it and to have what you need. And it's your recipe for success. And that's from music to friendships to food to equipment to, you know, whatever it may be for you. Um, figure out what that recipe is and those ingredients are and pull them together. Then you take them no matter where you go. Whether you're just in a little, you know, a quick little meeting with a couple of people you're super comfortable and familiar with, and you're, you're just, you know, going over a couple of things to make sure you're on the same page, or you're in the big whopper presentation, and and it's go time. You've you've got you bring the same toolkit to the table, and that's really really important when you're doing something like skiing, um, that takes you all over the world, and to lots of different cultures and to lots of different places, and and um, even the very snow that you're skiing on changes by the minute that you're out there. As much consistency by way of your own resources as you can pull together around you all the time, do. I think that's really amazing advice. Thank you so much. I'm sure everybody listening is really going to take something away from that. I know I did even to just compare it to my personal life and work life as well. So thank you for sharing your tips. Um, the last one thing Absolutely. I want to talk about is from what I've heard from Megan and um, just knowing a little bit more about you is that you have a passion for charity, for philanthropy. Um, it's what you spend a lot of time doing. So can you tell us a little bit about the organizations that you've either created or been a part of and what that means to you to be a part of that? Absolutely. So uh, the first thing I did, like right when I first retired from skiing, I started the Peekaboo's Street of Dreams Foundation. And um, it's worked kind of quietly for many years. Um, athletes and, and people along the way here and there um, and had, you know, I've just had friends um, donate to the foundation and then I grant out to different programs um, on behalf of kids is ultimately how it worked for a long, long time. Now it's an intricate part of um, raising money for scholarship dollars for kids going to my, uh, to my academy. And um, so the the second thing I did was start start my academy, which 
which I'm I'm in the process of kind of refiguring some stuff with it right now as far as um, how it's structured. But that was that whole motivation for school started because I was named to the US ski team when I was 15, as I told you earlier, and school was tough when we were doing it on the road. And I actually graduated high school through a correspondence curriculum out of the state of Alaska. So I am kind of a homeschooler, virtual curriculum, um, you know, graduate myself. And so I did that model before computers were the way that they did it. So I sent everything through the mail. So I did school you know, virtually, um, if you will, through snail mail. Right now, it seems. So I think you were a little yeah. ahead of the curve on that right. one. So ahead of the game by how many absurd years? <laughs> um, so that was another love of mine of going like, okay, you know, I fell in love with school when I was able to focus on doing school and it didn't take away from my skiing. If it took away from my skiing, I was like, it's out the window. This is nonsense. Get, you know, it's in my way. That's kind of how I viewed it. So, and I know a lot of athletes do. So I started the Peekaboo Street Academy to allow kids a year-round opportunity to enroll and finish their courses. So we're year-round operation, open enrollment. Uh, you can take one class or full credits with us. Uh, and you, when you're studying and you compete and train when you compete and train. And a lot of athletes, the competing and training comes first and the school comes second. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it only comes second in time, but not in rigor or importance uh, or, or future planning and prepping. Um, you know, there's a, uh, our first graduating class, uh, all of our students graduated with honors. Because wow. when they were given, yeah, when they were given the opportunity to actually study and not be distracted by, you know, an extra however long of minutes in class when they're not learning anything, they're actually learning the entire time that they are doing school at the academy so they get to leave at the two hour mark if they've gotten done what they need to get done for the day and they've got the rest of the day to do what they need to do to prepare for their sport you know some kids even even get jobs so um we watch them blossom and it's really really fun to watch the kids blossom and and um to be able to help them financially build the bridge with them, whatever sport they're doing we've got one girl who lives in west virginia and france and still does school with us and she's a figure. Oh, skater. Wow. She's a figure skater. But she knows our model and she's comfortable with it and comfortable with our teachers. And and that's how she's doing school. And she's she's in all APs and honors classes, um, which are the true real deal. They're not just more work in the same at the same subject load that the actual step above level of work. So, you know, it's okay. stout. It's legit. It's like yeah. not some little foo foo get through program. It's it's the real deal and the opportunity for you know, because if you look at athletes today, most of them are finishing their sport with at least two thirds of their life left to live. That's right. We have, we have to set them up to, to be able to live that life. They've got to be set up to, to go into the job force and, and you know, bang there with skills that are priceless that they've gained in, in, in sports and athletics. Um, and, and then when it comes to you know, going either the amateur route or going the the Olympic route, professional route. The pro, you know, the pros they need help in their whole other in that whole other way. That's a whole other can of worms. But you know, Olympic athletes, um, they they're done early, oftentimes, and they've got a lot, a lot of life left to live and a lot left to give. And 
one of the things I'm trying to do now is encourage a lot of companies to look to athletes, look to the USOC and fresh athletes retiring from sports and pull them into your workforce, pull them into your, right. into your, into your workforce because they'll be workhorses for you and they'll grind and be humble and work hard and, and learn fast, uh, be competitive. Like there's a lot of really good qualities there. So, you know, that's the next step is getting to helping the athletes bridge after they're done competing into, into life. So I guess just to wrap up our um, little talk here, I wanted to know a little bit about what your future plans look like. What's next for you personally, um, what you're doing with your charities and with your organizations, um, kind of what's down the line for you in the next, you know, couple of months and couple of years. So we were going to have a charity event for my foundation and um, two other organizations here in Utah uh this mm -hmm. spring and luckily we decided to postpone it and we would have ended up having to anyway because of this covid thing so um so we didn't do it but we're gonna do what i think is a cute idea um we're gonna do a um a charity event where we ski in the morning and have a fun ski race and then we do a golf tournament and then do a um not a gala but do a do a party and the whole basis for the fundraiser is going to be around education or <clears throat> for my goal for uh, avalanche safety and awareness stuff for um, character development. The, the, one of the, my partners is the first T of Utah and it's a, it's a national organization, but the group that I'm going to, to team up with is the first T of Utah chapter and they teach um, character development through the game of golf. So, you learn how to play golf in six days and every day there's a character like trait attached to it that's you know in golf there's there's integrity and honesty because you are your own scorekeeper and there really mm -hmm. is no there's no other platform out there that can get that raw and real and and make you look at yourself you know that hard of like do i deserve a mulligan or not on this whole like you know you keep your own score. <laughs> it's pretty legit golf's pretty hardcore that way but from an educational standpoint, you know, it's it's a, it's a real stout, robust program. So, so that's coming down the pipeline at some point um, to do that event, hopefully in the next year or two, and um, you know, raise lots of money for kids to get out there and figure out what their passions and dreams are. Um, there's some branches I want to start doing with the Peekaboo Street Academy, um, you know, to aim at a couple of different demographics there, and. Um, and the primary focus that I have in my life is being mom. I've got three beautiful boys. One is about to turn 16. So wow. I'm, you know, head, 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 I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, that, <laughs> makes, that makes me nervous. So I want to try and keep working with, with him to get him ready for life. And then my other two are 10 and 9. And um, so that's primary, A number one in life. Everything takes second place to that. Um, that's the you know the reason for my being and for my air every day is those three dudes and uh and then helping my fiance grow his practice which he's doing on his own i just try and take care of him too so um my father passed away in july of last year so we're coming up on a year so i take care of my mom as well uh so my mom is my mom's near and close and we make sure that she gets to spend lots of good quality with the grandkids so 
that's kind of life in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to come on my podcast and um, do an interview. That kind of wraps up the interview portion. But I thought it'd be fun to kind of wrap up the whole um, podcast episode with rapid fire questions, just so all of our listeners can get to know you a little bit better on a more, you know, personal, fun level. So would you be up for that? Yes, I totally would. Okay. Um, the first question is dog or cat? Dog. Do you have any pets? I do. I have two little miniature schnauzers. <laughs> oh, cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cardio or weightlifting? Combo. Like a hit workout or something different? Um, yeah. I'd say um, for for me, the way we always did it was um, was to do those on two separate days. And so the rebel in me wants to do those on the same day. <laughs> I do a combo of them and sandwich the sandwich the weights with the cardio on either side on t- on two different two different pieces of equipment. Okay, good advice. I'll I'll write that one down. I'm always looking for new ways to spice up the workout routine. Just changes it. Yeah, it just changes it. It's a mental thing for me. I think this next question might be way too easy for you, but beach or mountains? Ah, oh, believe it or not, that is a tough one. Um, okay. <laughs> I crave I crave the beach when the snow is melting because it okay. it makes me sad to see it melt. That's definitely fair enough. Um, the next question is coffee or tea? Tea. Okay, fair enough. Um, early riser or night owl? Neither. <laughs> Do you wake up or is it different now that? Um, is that terrible? Stuff? <laughs> um, That's funny. What, no. Which one do you I sleep, more towards? I sleep when I can sleep. Like some, it depends on what I have to do. Really, honestly, I, I have to say that I am a sucker to a, to a to-do list that's running constantly. And so um, obviously, you know, during the school year, I'm up early with the kids always have to be. And I've got one that's my youngest is my earliest riser. Okay. But when I can't sleep in, I will. But like, I'm lucky. I can roll over and go back to sleep again. A lot of people can't. So I think that's the only reason why I can say neither. But um, um, yeah, it all depends. I'll sleep whenever I can, really. I'm an Aries. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what my mom says, too, with kids. I think she just kind of wakes up when she needs to. But if she doesn't yes. have to be up too early, she won't be. <laughs> oh, nope. Um, well, that was my last question of the rapid fire questions. Thank you so um, much for, for taking some time out of your day to speak with me. Is there anything that you'd like to leave um, the listeners with or any last thought? The last thought I'd like to leave is um, the way that I'm living now is to start and end everything that I do with love. And it allows me to never have to question what I've done and it allows me to live more in the now I find it to be helpful well that's beautiful <laughs> thank 
Thank you so much for that. Um, and thank you to everybody that listened to this episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. I know not only did I learn a bunch, but I had a lot of fun too. So thank you so much again, Peekaboo, for coming on. And to all the listeners, please do make sure that you subscribe and support my podcast by leaving a review. It means so much to me already with all the love I've gotten. And I have a lot more exciting guests coming up too. So stay tuned. Um, this has been the happiest hour. Thanks for now. And I will see you guys next Sunday. Bye.